for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show. This is episode 35. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Keith Harris from the Ohio Libertarian Party. He is a Central Committee member, the Deputy Communications Director, and a spokesman for the organization. Aaron, welcome to the show. Those of you that have been listening to the podcast, remember a couple months ago, uh, we spoke to Nick Gillespie from Reason TV, and this is a follow-up. We're obviously getting heavy into planning the electoral season for 2016, and Aaron's going to have some great insights for from the Ohio Libertarian Party. So, Aaron, can you give a little, for the audience, can you give a background personally on where you grew up and how you got to the path that you're on today? Sure. Um, I grew up uh, in Fairborn, which is uh, just outside of Dayton. Uh, if your listeners are familiar with, uh, with Wright State University and uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, uh, east side of Dayton. Uh, I grew up there. Um, graduated from Fairborn High School in 1993. Um, graduated from Wright State in 1997 with a degree in political science. Uh, years later than that, I graduated from uh, Northwestern University with a master's in journalism. Uh, I've lived in a few other places, um, but uh, a few years ago came back to the area. Um, I've been a newspaper reporter, um, I've been a charter school, high school teacher, and uh, right now I'm in business for myself, kind of a freelance writer and editor, and I also do, uh, continue to do some substitute teaching in charter schools. And... Um, that's kind of me. Um, like I said, I've spent most of my life um, in Ohio, uh, some time in D.C. and Chicago. Um, lived in Columbus for a little while as well. Okay. One typically doesn't identify with themselves as libertarian as they're growing up. Was that the case for you? And, and how did you, if so, how did you get into the libertarian movement? Sure. Um, like a lot of people, um, I kind of started off as a Republican. Uh, my parents uh, were what you would call kind of the classic Reagan Democrats. Um, both of their sets of parents were from either Eastern Kentucky or Eastern Tennessee. Um, and so they all basically voted Democrat uh, as a basically a legacy from the Civil War. Um, my parents um, were... I think fairly you know, conservative families, uh, and then my dad uh, worked 34 years at General Motors here in Dayton. My mom uh, was a school teacher now. She's a, uh, like a counselor at the, at the high school level. Um, I know they both went for Reagan in 1980 on things like issues like the economy. I know they were, uh, like a lot of people, um, you know, the inflation and, and things like that in the 70s uh, wasn't, uh, didn't do a whole lot of good things for, uh, uh, I know, the Dayton area and a lot of other sort of rest belt cities. So I kind of grew up, they weren't very political, but I grew up, uh, uh, I was born in 75, so I was kind of a, a Reagan kid, um, really enjoyed and appreciated his sort of uh, message about, you know, basically, you know, government. Most, most of the time, it's not the solution to the problem. It is the problem. Uh, 
in the college Republican at Wright State. Um, and kind of a little bit after that, I kind of started to get disillusioned with the Republican Party, uh, mainly um, because they talked a lot about um, you know, simplifying the tax code, actually making uh, government smaller at the federal level, uh, peeling back a lot of uh, regulations. <coughs> It was a great answer, Aaron, and it's it, it it spoke to and touched on a lot of questions that I had for you uh, as I was preparing for the interview. So I'm really forward, looking forward to, to diving into each one of those with you. So out of all those issues, what was your tipping point, and then how did you become involved in the Ohio Libertarian Party as a result? Sure. presidential primaries, um, and then uh, the, the Republicans ended up nominating uh, John McCain, um, and I was very, like, I, I was, that was kind of a tipping point for me, because uh, I, you know, someone with a, a background in journalism, uh, you know, the First Amendment is just an incredibly great thing, and uh, McCain, you know, you all remember McCain-Feingold, which basically is uh, uh, limits on who can say what about politics. Um, 
And I thought it was just unbelievable that um, we could elect somebody, you know, not only who was uh, 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 what I considered to be my party at the time, someone who uh, favored severe restrictions on political speech. Now, I don't think that uh, what we have now is, is, is ideal at all, but uh, I don't think uh, campaign finance uh, uh, restrictions uh, is the way to go. Also, um, uh, the sort of the very, very pro-war uh, Republican Party um, that, you know, going from uh, going into Afghanistan after 9-11 to find the people who, um, you know, perpetrated uh, the attacks of 9-11 to, um, you know, invading Iraq on false pretenses. And we're basically still in both countries, um, you know, 12 to 14 years later, uh, depending on which country we're talking about. I, I really got, I was like, hey, the Republicans are not what um, what I'm about. I think they're, um, uh, like I say, they're for big government just on different things. Um, and so after, um, after the 2008 election, I, I knew Obama was not going to be a good president. Uh, I knew... Um, I, I did agree with a couple of things uh, that he said he stood for, uh, such as uh, backing off on the federal raids on medical marijuana dispensaries and, and, and drawing down the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but on the whole, you know, higher spending, higher taxes, more regulation, um, he knew that was coming with Obama. And so I, I just didn't vote for either candidate. I voted for the libertarian candidate that year and kind of uh, having been pretty interested and uh, pretty active in politics for a long time since college I was kind of disillusioned and kind of just completely said hey I'm not even gonna bother anymore a couple of years later um, I kind of started to um, I think with the passage of, uh, you know, volunteer and stimulus and things like that, of, you know, I just was sort of getting upset at where things were going, and I, I just happened to Google, um, I always considered myself, really since, um, for a few years previous to that, a small L libertarian, um, but, uh, so I, I Googled the, uh, Libertarian Party of Ohio, um, found out, uh, they were active and on the ballot, and so I just uh, volunteered um, to, to help out, and I've done a few different things for them um, over the years. Um, and it's a tough thing. A, uh, you hear the term third-party third a lot. I like to call it challenger party because, uh, you know, there's the Green Party, there's other parties uh, in other states. But I think the, the thing they all have in common is we're challenging the status quo. Uh, that uh, we should have more than uh, two choices on a ballot, especially when those two choices are really incredibly similar on a lot of the big issues. Uh, so it's hard work. Uh, there's not a lot of um, immediate payoff at all um, to working outside the party system, but I think it's an important thing um, just because I, I really don't see anybody changing either of the two major parties from within. Mm -hmm. You you touched on the first question I had written down, Aaron, and 
talk talk about the conundrum of ballot access and how both parties, while they espouse, in some cases, voter choice and, and wanting wanting people to vote, whether it's individual voter registration or challenger party ballot access, can you speak to the conundrum and the challenges in those two areas? Yeah, I could, I could probably talk for a couple of hours <laughs> on this topic. Uh, if, um, if you follow it, you probably know a little bit about this. We're currently uh, in federal court with the state of Ohio. Uh, the case is called LTO versus Houston, uh, Secretary of State John Houston. Um, basically, um, they passed the law, meaning the legislature, and with the signature of uh, Governor Kasich, in the fall of 2013, which basically, um, uh, there's some background to this, and I'll set up the, I'll explain the background in a minute, but uh, at the time, um, because, okay, this is kind of complicated, but it's, um, it's easy to follow if you kind of start from the beginning, which is this. Back in 2006, the um, state legislature passed a law um, that um, basically laid out how parties other than Republican and Democrat could uh, achieve and maintain ballot access. Uh, as you may or may not know, the um, whoever you know is in, in power, Republicans or Democrats are working together, they write the election laws in each state. So um, some states have pretty sensible open ballot access laws. Others, like Oklahoma, I think they may have recently gotten a change there, but it's been—it's almost impossible to get on the ballot as an independent or, or a challenger party in some places. I think Oklahoma is still one of them. Um, they passed a law in 2006 here in Ohio that was, was pretty restrictive. Uh, lots and lots of signatures uh, to get on the ballot tens and tens of thousands, and then you have to uh, do, uh, get a certain percentage of, uh, of the vote in, like, the presidential election or the governor's election, you know, they peg it to uh, a statewide election, and they, I forget exactly the, the terms of that law, but oftentimes these things will say, oh, you have to get 2%, 3%, 5%, uh, whatever, to stay on the ballot for the next election. So at that time, uh, the Libertarian Party here in Ohio sued um, and won in federal court. That case was called LPO versus Blackwell. He was the current Secretary of State at the time. Uh, of course, he's just, you know, the Secretary of State enforces what the legislature does, so they happen to get their names on the lawsuit, whether or not they happen to agree or not. Um, there was a case a couple of years later uh, with uh, Jennifer Bruner was uh, in office at the time. We won that in federal court, and each time when we won those, the federal judge who heard the case and struck down those laws issued a directive, basically. And the directive said, in the absence of an election law uh, that is constitutional, that accommodates challenger parties, I'm directing whoever's the Secretary of State in Ohio to place on the ballot any party that has a modicum of support. And so, yeah, legally speaking, a, a modicum of support, basically, it's a very low bar. The 
you have some members? Can you fill out the forms? Can you, you know, have a, a set of bylaws, um, et cetera? If you do, your party can get uh, on the ballot. Um, and under that directive, for example, um, we had to get for like a uh, congressional or state senate or state house race, like 25 signatures um, to get on the ballot per candidate. Uh, the major parties have to get 50, um, which, you know, and for statewide offices, it's like 500. Uh, the trick is, um, petitioning for a libertarian under this directive, if someone is registered as a Democrat or a Republican, they cannot sign um, a ballot uh, for a libertarian candidate. So a lot of our signatures uh, were tossed out at different times because it's I know a lot of people like myself in 2008 and 2012 uh, who are libertarians voted for Ron Paul in the presidential primary, so they're stuck uh, being considered Republicans here in Ohio for, uh, for at least two years. So uh, we've been operating under that directive, um, and in 2013, uh, Charlie Earle um, uh, announced that he was going to be run for governor as uh, a libertarian. He was a state representative back in the early 80s, for I think uh, uh, he filled out someone else's term who left early, and I think he was re-elected once. He was a Republican back then. Uh, he's still very popular with a lot of Tea Party groups. Um, a lot of the Tea Party groups here in Ohio uh, were behind Charlie Earl for governor uh, for the 2014 race. Uh, as you know, uh, John Kasich has, I know state spending has gone up um, more than 25% under Kasich. Um, he, he's it's been a very bad, um, as far as things like transparency with Jobs Ohio. Um, he, he's done a lot of things that actual conservatives and libertarians don't like. So he was going into this uh, 2014 race um, facing at that time, we didn't know who the Democrat challengers were going to be, but as we know, he had designs on running for the White House, which, of course, he's doing at the moment. So, Charlie Earl was getting a lot of support from Tea Party people. In fact, his kickoff speech, um, he had, I think, a crowd of 300 or so Tea Party people um, who would have normally voted Republican, who were supporting him. So, they passed this law um, in late 2013 called Senate Bill 193. And basically what that did was um, uh, wiped out basically the federal judge's directive because the directive was in place as long as there was no law in place. And what that, um, what that um, law did was basically anybody but Democrats or Republicans, um, basically you have to start over. Um, you're not on a ballot. You may not have ballot access until you get uh, it's something like thirty or forty thousand signatures, uh, which means effectively you have to get about twice that because of invalidation rates and oh I can't read the signature and you know they look for every reason to invalidate uh, signatures. They make it again lots of hoops to jump through, um, and so that law was passed. Um, we got a federal judge to, to basically 
put that on hold through the 2014 cycle because basically the you know the election cycle was already half over by the time they um, passed the law. We argued along with uh, I think the Green Party, the Constitution Party, the ACLU, um, said, "Hey, you can't do this in the middle of an election season." Um, so they postponed it, uh, but the law did take effect in 2015. Um, the court case that we started in basically the end of 2013 is still going. Um, we've uh, found out a lot of information about um, how the Republican Party operates, how they were behind uh, that law, they were behind legal challenges to Charlie Earl's candidacy. Um, and uh, we hope to get a positive result uh, from that lawsuit uh, in time for us to go back to the directive. Uh, to be on the ballot for the 2016 uh, election. Um, we had uh, a handful of candidates for local offices who were denied access to the ballot this year because uh, uh, basically the law is, is currently being enforced. Um, and so we hope to go back to the directive, get on the ballot for 2016, and then lobby uh, the state legislature for a ballot access law that is fair and constitutional. Uh, we don't want to cut a deal just for the Libertarian Party. We want um, other challenger parties uh, to be able to, um, to easily get access to the ballot. Um, I, I don't think, to me, it's very hard to make the um, argument that we want fewer choices and, few, and less democratic participation rather than more. Um, you know, I go to the uh, 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 I go to the grocery store, I have a choice of 18 different types of deodorant, 12 different types of toothpaste, um, 50 different kinds of soda, but uh, what I can only, I don't want to pick from two parties, right? So I think we can handle uh, a little more choice on the ballot, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a never ending process. Ever since I've been uh, involved with the LPO uh, since 2010, that's always our number one issue is keeping tabs on what the legislature is trying to do. Uh, we have lobbied the legislature in the past. We have what's called our playbook, which basically um, has a plan that uh, of what has worked in other states as far as fair ballot access laws that have stood up to constitutional challenges and that everybody can work with. Um, we've testified in a couple of committees, uh, we've but basically we've been largely ignored. Um, and uh, we hope that um, we really think we're going to win this case again. And then at that point, I hope that whoever's in charge in the state house uh, will want to sit down with us and um, the uh, uh, the Green Party. I think the, the, the Constitution Party is semi-active. Uh, but they'll sit down with uh, people who want to participate and don't want to do it as a Democrat or Republican, and let's get a fair law so we can stop being in court all the time, which we have been for the last seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's perhaps no explanation for this, but explain how a registered Democrat or Republican cannot fill out a petition. What's That, that makes no sense to me. Ohio, and uh, I, I, I can't speak for 
for exactly how it is in, in other states. But in Ohio, for official party registration, according to the state government, it is determined by which ballot you select in the previous primary election. So, basically, um, this uh, this year, um, almost there were only a couple of counties that have partisan elections in odd-numbered years here in Ohio. So, if you're in one of those counties, this doesn't exactly apply to you. But for everybody else, the great, great majority of Ohio voters, when we go in 2016, the primary election which will probably be a high turnout this year because we'll expect to have uh, both the Democrat and Republican presidential races will still be going on. So whenever that election is, I think it's in March this year, uh, you go up to the ballot, uh, wherever you vote, and they should ask you um, which ballot do you want. You can choose Republican, Democrat, or issues only, uh, as, it, as it stands right now. Hopefully, Libertarian and Green will be an option as well then, too. So, you ask, uh, and no matter what you voted last time, because I voted Libertarian in the last primary election, so as I walk in there, I'm still considered a Libertarian. But if I decide, hey, I want to vote in a Democrat primary this time, then they give me a Democrat ballot, okay? And then I'm considered a Democrat until the next partisan primary. So, if you vote, for example, like a lot of our uh, people who are active on our state party now, they voted for Ron Paul in the Republican primary of 2012. Therefore, under state law, they are considered Republican Party members, whether they've given a dime to the Republican Party, no matter if that's the last Republican they voted for, or the only Republican they voted for, they're still considered a Democrat, or sorry, a Republican. So they cannot um, circulate petitions on behalf of a, of a candidate for another party. They cannot hold an office at the state or local level in another party. So we've had a lot of people who for a couple of years wanted to serve as an officer uh, at the state or county level as a Libertarian. But according to state law, they could not do so because they were considered Republican. So a lot of them, of course, voted Libertarian in 2014, and then were allowed to participate in the political process the way they wanted, right? So, you know, obviously I think we have some First Amendment issues there. Um, so, um, yeah, that's it. So if you vote a Republican last time and you decide you want to support a Democrat uh, in your, you know, for your local uh, city council, or local mayor, county commissioner, um, you can't circulate petitions for that person, and you can't sign that person's petition because you're still considered a Republican. Um, so when Libertarians circulate petitions for their candidates, um, A, you know, a lot of people who do want their voices heard in, in a presidential primary or in an important senatorial primary have locked themselves out of certain types of participation. And then when we go to, to ask, hey, will you sign my petition I want to run for, like I, I, I'm considering running for Congress uh, next year. So if I go to someone, and if they voted in the Republican or Democrat primary, um, I, 
and I know that, I'm not allowed to take the signature. And now if I don't know that, and I take it, they'll just invalidate the signature. Uh, and a lot of people don't know uh, what their registration is. They, they may consider themselves a Republican, but if they didn't vote in that last election, they're an independent. They may consider themselves an independent, but if they wanted to vote for President Obama in the last primary, well, they're considered a, a Democrat. So it's, it's very confusing, and I think that confusion is built into the process intentionally to frustrate the um, other challenger parties and movements who want to get involved. Um, I, I actually um, have studied the issue some, and uh, I actually helped uh, a couple other people make a documentary film uh, that came out in um, uh, late 2012, early 2013. The film was called Of By Four, like of the people, by the people, for the people. And in that uh, film, I got to, uh, I'm not on camera, I uh, did a lot of the interviews with the people in the movie. Uh, you hear their answers, you don't hear my questions. Um, but I interviewed Ralph Nader for that film, Ron Paul, Dennis Kucinich, um, a lot of other different people. And uh, Ralph Nader in particular talks about how state laws in a lot of places um, are deliberately um, written and enforced in a certain way to frustrate people like him who want to run as an independent or as a, as a challenger party. Um, and I, I think that's pretty unfortunate. Uh, but again, that's, uh, the people in power are usually pretty good at protecting the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the focus on Ohio, and I'm just shaking my head <laughs> as you said all that, because uh, I'm in that situation because I did vote for Ron Paul in the primaries uh, the last two times. Uh, you mentioned Kasich, and there's this facade and in, in belief in, in the minds of many that he's made the budget outlook for Ohio much better than when he took office. Can you can you speak to to what the reality is of that? Uh, yeah, uh, the reality is that uh, uh, I know spending has gone up. Um, well, you know, kind of depending on somebody's numbers, but I think the um, even the most conservative uh, estimate of of uh, you know fiscal policy under Chase and Kitt, um, overall state spending has gone up by. 25 to 30 percent, um, which you know they uh, they balance the budget, uh, but again, states have to balance the budget. Um, they can't run operating deficits uh, like the federal government can, and you saw that through. Um, I know some fees have been raised, um, some taxes have lowered, but I think overall, um, you know, tax revenue is still pretty high. Um, the other thing that, that what he's done basically is uh, pretty, you know, from a political perspective, it's it's pretty uh, pretty smart from his uh, viewpoint. Uh, a lot of the decisions he's made are really going to the consequences are going to be on whoever the next governor or two is going to be. Um, not just other parts of the budget, obviously, but the big part was the Medicare expense. Medicaid expansion. Um, he, uh, you know, he had his um, 
issues are really on the Libertarian Party's radar at the moment. I actually think 
drinking age 18, but that's a different issue. But let's say, let's say that age stays at 21. Um, I think marijuana, either for recreational use, medicinal use, um, uh, things like industrial uses of hemp and, and other things for uh, plants that are currently banned, I think that should all be handled and regulated basically like alcohol. Um, and, um, in other words, stop putting people in jail just for marijuana possession or for selling small amounts. Well, along comes Responsible Ohio, which um, we oppose. We actually voted on it, our executive committee, and uh, we're speaking out against it because what it does is it basically creates, you know, we hear all these things about Mexican drug cartels and, you know, we see movies of, uh, you know, Scarface and, uh, uh, you know, Breaking Bad with the drug cartel on there. Uh, but uh, Responsible Ohio basically creates a legal drug cartel uh, made up of, I think there's 22 or so investors who spent millions of dollars getting this on about. If Responsible Ohio passes, uh, yes, marijuana will be legal for recreational um, and medicinal use by adults, but you can only buy it um, if it's grown at one of these 10 locations that will be granted to the investors in this project or their friends. Um, and if you go outside of that system, if you don't buy from that cartel, then you're you're still on the black market. Um, I've done a little research into this that uh, a lot of people, especially who want to, and a lot of them do already use um, uh, certain cannabis or marijuana products for, for uh, serious health issues. Uh, currently, they're risking you know, uh, arrest and prosecution here in Ohio. They get it from other states or where they grow it themselves or other ways. Um, uh, I, I just read an article today. In fact, there was uh, a parent who had a child with some sort of issue, and uh, it's a pretty rare strain of marijuana that would be very unlikely to be grown by one of these 10 cartel farms. Um, so that, that family would be out of luck. They would still have to be criminals to go to Colorado or some other black market. Uh, uh, you know, it's legal in Colorado, but it would be illegal to bring it to Ohio. Or they could go to some other illegal market to get the medication they need for their children. Um, other people, uh, again, uh, giving one uh, small group of people the ability to, to get rich, basically, off of this is not the way to go. Um, the way to go is to basically, you know, we, I'm sure we have dozens and dozens, if not more, microbreweries here in Ohio. Um, and, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have drug wars going on over, you know, the, this, uh, you know, this craft beer guy is not, uh, you know, gunning down the other guy because he's, you know, making beer on his territory, right? You know, we have the, the free market of, uh, uh, Normal businesses with access to the courts are making beer and wine and other things, and there's no problem. And I think that should be our model for the for the marijuana side of things. Um, you know, again, I think that most of the research shows that uh, marijuana is far less dangerous uh, health-wise than uh, alcohol. And you know, whatever you happen to think of uh, alcohol or marijuana. Um, this should be one of those things where it's left up to the individual. 
they should be able to choose what they put in their bodies, what they have in their homes, uh, as long as they're not um, uh, acting irresponsibly while using a product or or doing something to hurt someone else to get it. Um, so it's actually been a big issue for us. A lot of people when we came out against Responsible Ohio, uh, we got some angry uh, uh, emails and things like that. So we got some. Uh, from what I understand, a couple of pretty bizarre phone calls of angry people leaving uh, messages thinking that we are uh, against, uh, you know, uh, more sensible marijuana laws. Uh, in fact, we're, we're still for all the things we've been for. Um, we just don't think this is the way to go. It's kind of like, it's almost exactly the same model as gambling here in Ohio. I think there's four casinos. Well, those four, those companies can make millions of dollars, but uh, if you try to have a, a poker game at your bar, then you're breaking the law, right? Well, again, that stuff should be able to be out in the open um, where, you know, you choose whether or not to do it, and uh, responsible businesses should be allowed to offer um, things like that, and I think that uh, um, that's a much better way to go. Um than, than responsible Ohio, I'm sad to say. And for, for what I can tell, it's not, it's probably not going to pass, uh, but it's sad that we're having to sort of have this debate um, um, over something that, again, that I, I think the benefits we can get from, uh, from not uh, treating marijuana like uh, something incredibly dangerous and ending the war on marijuana, we so much benefit, um, and so it looks like we're going to have to wait until this gets defeated, and then hopefully uh, get a, a better law in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have similar thoughts. Uh, when, when the casino thing came out, the same thing about uh, I'm, I'm not under, I, I'm not really understanding why government would ever support monopolies being created through legislation. And then, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, well, yeah, to, yeah but government itself is a monopoly, right? I mean, sure. I think you have, to, you have to look at that aspect of it that, um, you know, a lot of what government does, as opposed to what it should do, right? Um, what it should do is protect life, liberty, and justly acquired property, um, like the Founding Fathers uh, uh, kind of set things up to. But in reality, uh, it does a lot of things like pick winners and losers in the market, uh, like the statewide gambling thing. The state makes money off of it. Uh, a few hand-picked companies with friends in government and a big lobbying budget, they make a lot of money off of it. But, uh, you, know, God, you know, God forbid, uh, I know uh, several years ago in my hometown, there was a basically a, a small-time pool hall where, where – some old duffers, they had a card game in the back of the, it's actually right on the block where I live, actually, uh, and they got raided by the Fairborn cops, and, uh, you know, for basically a, a, a very low-stakes poker game, well, but, you know, they, they didn't have the special permit from the state of Ohio to do it, so, um, and that's what Jobs Ohio does, right, the, uh, the so-called uh, economic development thing at the state level that Basically, John Kasich uses it to block officials from other com- uh, from other countries and other states to bring their business into Ohio. Uh, I know there's a big glass company that just opened uh, 
here in the Dayton area, actually at the uh, GM plant where my dad uh, retired from. And uh, basically that was from uh, the Chinese company through, I think, you know, promises of uh, tax abatements and either low interest or no interest loans. Uh, so taking tax money from you and I, who were trying to make a living or run a business or, you know, um, the mom-and-pop businesses in Ohio don't get any help, but their tax money is uh, uh, given away uh, to foreign uh, businesses or out-of-state businesses to come in. And so John Casey can have a big uh, photo op. Um, see, oh, look what I did. Well, you know, look at all the businesses you've kept out of business during regulation. Um, I know that Ohio is one of the worst states in the country as far as um, uh, uh you know, where would you want to start a business because of, uh, I think, the uh, uh, regulatory situation, the tax situation, the, um, you, know, la- the you know, labor unions have uh, uh, the big upper hand on things here in Ohio. I'm, I don't oppose labor unions, but I don't think they should have uh, uh, special protection any more than big corporations should. Um, so um, you would think that uh, the proper role of government is what you, what you just said. Stay out of it. Make sure nobody's getting ripped off. Nobody's getting uh, beaten up or threatened, or uh, uh, you know, and then stay out of it. But uh, unfortunately, that government is, is a lot about um, picking winners and losers and granting special favors to people who um, contribute to campaigns and uh, and scratch each other's backs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other the other part about the marijuana thing is. And I spoke to someone earlier this summer from Colorado. I asked, I said, what, what's the impact been in your state with, with the use? And she said, on the user side, it's pretty minimal. The people that were smoking before the law are smoking after the law. That, that really, the usage hasn't really changed. But... From a tax revenue standpoint, they've been able. The, the state legislature has been able to give rebates back to taxpayers because they brought in more revenue than uh, than was expected. And by Colorado law, they have to give that back. And the other thing that the other impact is the amount of research and research dollars coming into the state from the medical community because. It's a place, to your point, that doctors and medical medical inventors, if you will, can test the benefits of marijuana against a variety of human ailments, and that was a that was a side effect that they didn't really expect, but that's that's yep. created high tech jobs and opportunities and, and and things that they didn't anticipate, and I'm I'm just so afraid that because hopefully this. This is now. This issue won't pass. It's going to be another year or another two years before Ohio has a chance to reap those benefits, and the window is going to close. The window is going to get shut more and more and more. Very similar to the eighty. Very similar to the eighties, where the whole casino thing was never legalized, and and there were missed there were missed opportunities there as well. Issue. Uh, in addition to the things you mentioned about um, uh, the medical side, um, there's the you know industrial hemp side of things. That um, you know, I'm not one of these guys who goes around claiming that 
you know, some of the marijuana activists, uh, I think, are kind of confusing, even though I tend to agree with them on a lot of things. You know, I don't think that, uh, you know, marijuana is going to turn things into a utopia. I'm not uh, a user myself. Um, uh, I have in the past, and, you know, I'm not going to deny that, but, uh, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm not, I don't have this policy because I want to smoke pot, because guess what, if I want to smoke pot, I can get it anywhere I want anyway. Um, but uh, the things that when government comes in and makes something like that illegal, we really have no way of knowing what medical um, uh, advances, what industrial uses for this stuff could be, uh, what it could be put to use for, and that's what the free market does. The free market figures all that stuff out. The other thing, and I think it's very important. Um, yeah, I taught uh, for three years uh, full-time at a charter school in West Dayton that was specifically designed. It was called a credit recovery school for kids who had been um, you know, suspended, expelled, uh, dropped out of Dayton public schools, which is one of the worst public school um, systems in the nation. Uh, Dayton is uh, uh, as a city, city limits is... Uh, Incredibly poor, incredibly mismanaged uh, by Democrats uh, in this case. Um, but uh, so these kids who have basically been not served well at all by uh, public schools um, came to this school, and uh, it was a, a very challenging job. But it's the favorite, my favorite job I've ever had. Um, a lot of these kids had. Um, Jail, when you're 
17 or 18 for minor drug offense. Well, you know, you're slinging on a corner for whatever you're slinging, right? You go to jail, you're going to have a very, very hard time getting a job after that. And you're going to be indoctrinated, whether you're white or black, into some sort of gang in prison so that when you come out, the best employment opportunity you're going to have as a 18, 19-year-old with a record is in criminal enterprise. So instead of coming out, getting uh, rehab, coming out, getting your GED and getting back on track, you're stuck with this drug charge and you're going to turn to more criminal activity because uh, you know, every time you fill out a job application, have you been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor? And so by letting police focus on actual violent crime, property crime, uh, big time drug deal, you know, stuff like that, not focusing on small possession and small distribution stuff, not only are we, you know, um, lessening a lot of the violence with the war on drugs, but we are not putting a whole bunch of people, in particular young black men, disproportionately, uh, unfortunately, but also uh, uh, white, Hispanic. Um, we're not putting them in the criminal justice system at an earlier age. Therefore, they're going to have a chance of getting things turned around. Um, and for me, that's another big thing. Of, uh, there's just a lot of great potential uh, of young people who... Um, are unfortunately, because of a mistake when they're young, they're diverted, um, and it becomes much more makes much more sense for them to become a uh, become a real criminal rather than a small time one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great points. I wanted to go back to you mentioned school choice, and and that was one question I I wanted to talk to you about uh, going the tax code. It's so convoluted, not. At all levels of government, I know the Libertarian Party ideally would want little or no taxes. But what what is a tax strategy that the Libertarian Party believes could be a win win for everybody? Well, on a national level, a lot of uh, Libertarians uh, tend to favor. Uh, well, I think all, just about every Libertarian favors ending the IRS, which means taking a huge tax code, which is literally, uh, I think it's, you know, that, I know it's tens of thousands of pages, the tax code. I think it's 16,000 pages right now. Yeah, you, and with, when you add federal regulations on top of that, literally you have like a couple million pages or whatever. But, you know, the tax code, even for me, I, I, I uh, self-employed, have a few different sources of income. I can't begin to figure out my taxes. I have to take to get it done. Um, um, abolish the IRS and either go to a flat tax with basically a personal deduction. Um, a sort of the fair tax, the national sales tax thing, um, which would be, um, I, I'm not an expert on that. I think it's a decent idea, but I'm afraid that passing that while we still have what is 16th Amendment that allows the income tax. I think we'd end up both eventually again. And then some people like Ron Paul, who's, uh, who's a Republican, but uh, obviously a smaller libertarian, um, and a lot of other libertarians favor, you know, doing away with the income tax and replacing it with nothing. In, in other words, uh, uh, you know, we uh, survive as a country until, what is it, 1913 or something, basically just on uh, other forms of taxation, uh, tariffs, things like that. 
workable in the short term. Um, personally, I, I would probably go for a flat tax. Um, but uh, in addition to a personal deduction, uh, both with education and health care. Over and over and over again, you hear people, especially on the left, but also among Republicans, say, uh, you know, health care is so important, education is so important, we need to spend more money on this stuff. Um, I agree, but I don't think it should be the government spending money. I think it should be people uh, through charitable giving and, and educating their own children, taking care of their own health care. Why not have a tax code where every dollar that you spent on health care for you or someone else and every dollar that you spent on education for you or someone else would be completely deductible. In other words, if my if I want to uh, give um, uh, $2,000 to my uh, sister to cover her children's medical bills and I document that, that take that off my tax bill, right? So uh, and I think that I would say that as well for um, uh, schools uh, and at the state level, of course, as you know, the uh, state school funding uh, here in Ohio has been declared unconstitutional. It has been for about 30 years. No one wants to fix it. Uh, rich districts have all kinds of stuff. Poor districts have no resources. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm a homeowner. I think that the, the portion of my property tax and my income tax that goes to schools, I think I should be able to either send it into the government or send it to uh, a person or a foundation that uh, uses that to educate people. Whether I don't have children, but if I did, um, I'd want to be able to spend that money on my children. Um, uh, right now, I could give it to my uh, sister for uh, to educate my niece and nephew. I could give it to a foundation that uh, educates poor kids. Um, something like that, where the money that people earn um, and can make decisions about if only they had access to their own money, right? I think that in addition to vouchers for uh, uh, poor families, I think that if you allow people to uh, uh, donate their money uh, pre-tax um, to uh, legitimate educational uh, endeavors, whether it's uh, Again, a direct personal thing, as long as it's used on education or a, or a private school, parochial, uh, charter. You can give it to your public school if you wanted to. If you wanted to give extra money to your public school because your children are there and you believe in it, or you are a uh, retiree who wants, uh, who wants your alma mater to have more money, why not allow people to donate money, get that off the tax bill, uh, if healthcare and education are so important, as we hear all these uh, politicians say, which of course they are, of course they're two of the most important things uh, that we can spend our money on, I would rather have individuals be able to decide how to spend that money uh, to help themselves or to help their neighbors rather than the school board at the, at the local level, the state education board, uh, Department of HHS, uh, etc. Um, so I think a, uh, a very, very flat tax system that allowed uh, uh, deductions for those types of documented uh, uh, personal use or charitable giving for health care or education would be, uh, it would just unleash so much innovation in the education side of things, the health care situation, 
if you tinkered with some of the uh, restrictive laws, um, now you can really open that up. Of course, Obamacare, because people benefit from that, or insurance companies, but that's another topic. But uh, again, the, the goal for libertarians is as many decisions as possible, to as great a degree as possible, should be left to the individual, and that we should not use compulsion um, as a means of social policy. Every libertarian, to be a, a member, to be a leadership position in a party, um, the Libertarian Party pledges, uh, you pledge to uh, not advocate or use uh, force uh, or the threat of force to achieve social goals. So, um, uh, to me, I think that should be our, our guide in uh, uh, with all government spending and all government programs is, hey, fine, let's do this, but um, let's not put someone in jail if they, if they don't go along just because um, they have a different view of how to educate their child than the state does. Mm-hmm. From a from a business perspective, there, there's always a talk about it. it's it's every campaign issue: jobs, jobs, jobs. What what can the what can the local governments and the state government do in Ohio to increase the likelihood that businesses will be retained and right. new, new businesses will come into the state? Well, a lot of things. Uh, the first thing. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think there'll be a, there's a lot to like in my answer, uh, and a lot of people on different sides of the issue, there's a lot that they won't like. So stick with me if you're listening and don't like the first couple of things I say. First thing is abolish the uh, state income tax here in Ohio State, the local income taxes. Um, I know absolutely for a fact that there are a lot of people who live in Florida six months in one day. Um, and don't live in Ohio or Michigan or something like that, simply to say uh, if you're a CEO and you make a lot of money, then that big chunk of money that you're, uh, you know, we look at a relatively small uh, uh, percentage of uh, uh, state and local income tax, uh, the higher up you get, the more conscious you are of that money. So get rid of that income tax, period, from, from the poorest person to the richest person. Second of all, you have to um, uh, greatly decrease regulations at every level, state, uh, local, of course, you can't do anything at the federal level if we're just talking state policy, but it should be as easy as possible to start and maintain a business uh, here in Ohio or in a particular uh, uh, city or county. I think um, because we have this big tax code on the corporate side and individual side, and we have a lot of regulations, then we get into these things where counties and cities and states are bidding against one another to get a business to stay or to uh, or to rule one here. I mean, Dayton lost NCR to Atlanta a few years ago, and a lot of people uh, blame Governor Strickland, like, oh, you didn't give them enough tax breaks or offer them enough goodies to stay. Well, what, I mean, what kind of economy is that? Why, why are people... It, People should want to go where they can find good quality workers, a good transportation infrastructure, um, you know, whatever natural resources they need. Why, why should they be factoring in favors from politicians as to where they locate? So you have NCR who's been here for decades and decades and decades to escape the uh, regulations and taxes here in Ohio and go to Georgia. 
again, I don't think whatever deal Georgia gave them, uh, I, again, I don't think that's ethical. I, I don't think that's the way we should be ordering our economy by seeing who can bribe politicians enough to get a, a tax break. Uh, we talked about before, it's not fair to the mom and pop businesses who are here trying to start a business. You know, I, I'm just amazed that, you know, that factory uh, building where my dad retired from, a GM there in the rain, it's empty for 10 years. But, and then a Chinese glass company comes in. Now, you, are you going to tell me that there's no business here in Ohio or, or, in, the, or in the Great Lakes region or somewhere in America that could put that uh, to use? Well, the reason they didn't come here was because of regulation taxes. And you, uh, so you're setting the bar, you're putting all this red tape up, and then the ones who are good at negotiating or bribing their way past it are, are the ones creating jobs, supposedly. The other thing, and again, I, I am uh, not um, a union buster or anything like that, uh, well, except on the, I, I did favor the, uh, uh, what was it, issue five. I, I don't think public sector employees should be unionized whatsoever. But as far as private sector unions, um, I, I fully favor the right to unionize, and I, I think that uh, uh, companies should have um, the obligation whether they want to fire those, uh, you know, whether they want to deal with unions or not. But the fact that Ohio is not a right-to-work state uh, really puts it at a disadvantage with other states um, uh, like Tennessee and things like that. I, know, I think uh, uh, Michigan recently passed some union reforms, so we're going to be losing out to Michigan on some of those things too. Um, so on one hand, uh, people on the left won't like able to eliminate taxes and regulations and uh, giving labor the upper hand in negotiations. Whereas on the right, um, you know, libertarians are 100% against corporate welfare of any kind. Um, so, you know, if Walmart or the big banks or whatever, they're able to get special favors, they're able to get regulations written in a certain way that they can handle but their competitors can't handle, you got to stop doing that too and let an actually free market decide things. You know, not a, there's no politician in the history of the world who actually created a job. All they can do is take money from productive pursuits and uh, put it toward uh, pursuits that are not as productive. Um, and we don't know what uh, could have been done had that market, had that money stayed in the free market. There's an essay I, I recommend everyone read. Um, uh, Frederick Bastiat um, wrote in France about 150 years ago. He's a very simple, easy to understand writer. He has an essay called What is Seen and What is Not Seen, which talks a lot about you know, government can pass a law, uh, uh, levy a tax, and then build something big like a stadium. And, and you know, John Kasich or, or Barack Obama can stand in front and say, oh, look how great I am. I, I built a stadium or I bought this glass factory in Dayton. But we don't see the ripple effects of the damage that those policies do to everybody, um, everybody else. I know that Hamilton County is on the hook for that Bengal Stadium deal. It's just crushing them and the businesses there. Um, but the politicians at the time got credit for building that stadium. So government should step aside, keep the playing field level, uh, not let big businesses run roughshod over people. Um, uh, you know, environmental regulations should be, if you're causing 
environmental harm to your neighbors or to uh, the air that people breathe, stop, right? You know, it should be based on actual harm done, uh, holding those companies and the people who run them strictly liable for that stuff, and not arbitrary regulations that uh, uh, everybody has a hard time figuring out how to follow. Aaron, I wanted to address that point because that's that's something that come up in conversation with my friends all the time. Can you can you explain how the concept of property rights can really take the place of legislative regulations and and government agency regulations and be more effective? Sure. Yeah, there's a there's a, a guy that you really uh, I recommend everybody read about this. He's one of the most brilliant uh, libertarians uh, ever, especially on uh, economic issues. His name is Murray Rothbard. R O T H D A R D. He's written a lot about this. Um, and in particular, um, one of the uh, most fundamental concepts of uh, economics is the tragedy of the commons. Um, in other words, uh, it comes from back in the day uh, that in a town they would have a, uh, you know, the big, uh, like a park set aside where people could graze their uh, animals, right? Well, and everybody was allowed to take their animals in and graze and all that stuff. And nobody owned it. It was called the commons because everybody owned it in common. Well, if I take my sheep herd into there, I have no incentive to limit their use of uh, the grass. I have every incentive just to let them eat everything they can, to, uh, uh, you know, drop manure everywhere and not clean up after. Um, in other words, I, I have the incentive to take as much as I can and leave it uh, in however condition uh, for the next person. But if somebody owns that and charges rent or a fee for that, then they have an incentive to keep it up, to uh, enforce rules on the usage. And so basically, if if private, if everything were owned, right, um, I always use the uh, uh, example of you know, I have a neighbor. If my neighbor is um, doing a, a chemical experiments in his garage and the fumes waft over on my edge, then I should be able to basically call the police on him, right? Like, there is uh, uh, dangerous chemicals that are floating onto my uh, property. That should be treated just the same as if you throw rocks through my window. The same thing if a huge company like, uh, I don't know, uh, let's say Dow Chemical or something like that, uh, pollutes a river, well, everybody along that river, um, uh, if it's a municipal water supply of the city, all the property owners down that river should have a claim against the people who polluted that river. And but what we see now, uh, and that, again, if, if companies and the officers of those companies were held strictly liable for the damage that they do, then they would think twice, they would be much more careful than they are now, which, again, if they find a, they, they lobby to get regulations just to the level, you know, a certain level, and then they uh, continue to influence the regulators to give them special favors, and um, that, that basically um, they are focusing on trying not to uh, uh, basically run afoul of the EPA, and then the EPA can come in, whereas they should be thinking about respecting the private property rights 
of their neighbors and the rights, again, like a municipal water supply, whether that's publicly or privately owned. Again, um, if everybody owns something and the owner of a property can sue for damages uh, or, per, or perhaps in some cases hold criminally liable people who uh, create environmental uh, problems that, that actually have a tangible effect on you, I think that incentive is much, much more, um, um, will, will hold big companies and small to account much better. And also I think it's more just, right? What, like our legal system should be based on, did you actually harm someone? Did you actually directly threaten someone? Then yes, you should be, that should be a criminal matter. Did you uh, 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 violate some arbitrary law that did not have any connection to actually harming somebody's property in the real world? Again, that's that's much harder to uh, enforce, I think. And again, all the evidence shows uh, over history, uh, whether it's environmental regulation, food safety, product safety, that the big guys um, who can lobby Congress, uh, the lobby the regulators and the enforcers and or straight up bribe them in some cases, those guys get away with stuff. Uh, they um, they um, shift the playing field in their favor and emerging businesses and little guys and individuals uh, are, are usually victimized in that process while uh, the big guys uh, just pay a fine and, and keep polluting or, or whatever. Great, great points. Uh, Aaron, wanted to wrap it up. How could the audience get in touch with the Ohio Libertarian Party and you in particular? Oh, sure. Uh, it's pretty easy. Our website is lpo.org. Uh, if you go on there, you can sign up for a newsletter. You can uh, ask a particular question. You can find out um, if there's a county party active in your area. Uh, if there is, we can get you hooked up with them. If there's not, we can get you information on how to uh, how to start one. If you're interested in running for office, uh, you can do that too. Um, I, I'm, uh, personally, I'd be happy to answer questions from uh, anybody. You come direct to me if you, if you uh, rather do that. So it goes through the uh, kind of the submission form on the website. And uh, my uh, uh, email is Aaron, A-A-R-O-N dot Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. So Aaron dot Harris at LPO dot O-R-G. And my, uh, my phone number, you can call or text, is 937-825-0204. Like I said, I handle all the media stuff for our party. So, uh, but even if you have a small non-media request, Party chair had a line 
you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, libertarians can infiltrate the Republican Party and we'll take control of it. Um, Nick Sarwark is his name, and he says, that's about as effective a strategy as if uh, a bunch of vegans uh, wanted to change McDonald's from the inside by, by getting a couple hundred people uh, to get jobs as uh, cashiers at McDonald's, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are, are dedicated to perpetuating themselves and to keep them staying in power, and uh, they're, they're not going to change um, uh, from within, certainly. Um, so if, if you care about freedom and uh, you actually want to do something, uh, we would be happy to have you in the Libertarian Party here in Ohio. Great. Well, thanks. Thank you for the time, Aaron. No problem. It's been a pleasure. And uh, uh, like I said, if you ever have any other questions, uh, come on again closer to the election or whatever, um, uh, I'd be happy to. Okay. Well, if you can hold the line, Aaron, I'm going to sign off here and thank the audience for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 35 with Aaron Harris from the Ohio Libertarian Party. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day.